Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Be The Right Club Today podcast. Our next guest on the podcast is one of the best golfers this game's ever known. 39 PGA Tour wins, eight major championships, including five British Opens. He was the PGA Tour Player of the Year six times. If there was an award to be won in golf, this man won it. Mr. Tom Watson. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Tom. Hello, Hal. How are you, buddy? It's been a long time. It has. Yeah, you got, you got a little bit of a yeah, little bit of a thing right here working, don't you? Yeah, just you know, do something different. Why not? You know, well, everybody's wearing them. Yeah, well, I joined the crowd. What can I say? Where, where uh, are the tattoos? We got to have the tattoos. <laughs> That's what one thing I don't have, Tom. <laughs> I have so, gone you know, through yet, but it, it, never say never. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think I am ever going to have a tattoo. But on to something more important. How's the horses? Well, the horses are good. I, uh, I, I showed them the Abilene Spectacular this last weekend. I had four horses uh, to show, but I, only, I got one to the finals and finished fourth in the five, six-year-old uh, uh, intermediate amateur. Won two grand. <laughs> there you go. You just keep passing me on up, you know? Uh, that's right. I got You're my <laughs> – eat my dust, Hal. <laughs> I, i've been eating your dust for a long time tom no well you haven't you haven't been on the back of a horse i'm sure for a long time yeah it's been 15 years at least but so i, I want to how real quick don't our listeners need, real quick sorry how to interrupt you don't our listeners need to need to uh understand a little bit about the the greatness where we're amongst right now aren't you guys the two leading money winners in quarter horse golfer championships or what's the what's the title there well, thanks for setting this up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's an organization for our listeners called the uh, National Cutting Horse Association. And, and Hal, back in the 90s, I believe, he's, he, he did a lot of riding back then. And, and uh, I, I started riding, uh, oh, about five and a half years ago uh, because my career in golf was, it was ending. And I, I wanted to do something completely different. And I had been around my wife uh, for years who was, he was, uh, very successful. He was a very successful cutter. And I finally, uh, I was, I went to one of her shows and said, you know, I'm, I'm tired of sitting on my butt watching. I've got to do this. And, uh, fortunately I have a, a good operation here in Kansas and a great horseman to teach me. And, and that's what I had to learn first. And I guess how no, you have, you have to learn horsemanship, uh, and then cutting. And that's, uh, that's how I started. And, uh, now five and a half years later, I've, I spent a lot more money than I won. I can tell you that, Chris, and I know that. <laughs> well, well, when Tom texted me and told me that he had passed me, I said, so how much money did it cost you to pass me? Because it happens to be one of the most expensive things you can do. And, uh, you know, of course, Tom had the career that allows him to enjoy that. And, uh, you know, I made it at the core, at the core of you, Tom. Like me, I always wanted to be a cowboy. I was a little boy, you know, growing up, wanted horses, and and uh, it kind of lived out a dream riding those horses for a while. Well, you know, I was, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, Roy Rogers and uh, and the Lone Ranger and things like that. But uh, 
Uh, I didn't really want to become uh, uh, really a horseman until I, I started watching Hillary, my wife, ride and doing so well. And and uh, I finally said, you know, I, there's a lot to this thing that I'd like to learn. And uh, as I said, my career was uh, was about ended and I had about ended and, and I, I wanted to do something else in my life before I uh, go to the, uh, the final hole in the, in the sky up there. Well, on another subject here, let's get on golf. You know, I've said to many kids that come in here, I believe the greatest player for the longest period of time is Tom Watson. Uh, I've admired you for a long, long time, Tom. You had uh, the ability to know where your club face was in your golf swing as well as anybody in the world and played it at a really high level late in life. So, uh, well, I would have you on the podcast. Well, thanks. I would disagree with you as far as uh, uh, the the greatness is concerned. Uh, I, I couldn't carry Byron Nelson's shoes. I mean, I know he had a short career, but watching Byron uh, so closely as I did for many years, watching that golf swing and the, the way he controlled the club face, Hal. I mean, his club face was square to impact uh, that long in his golf swing. And, you know, he could... You know, he, his pull hook just barely went a little bit left. His, his slice just went a little bit right. He, uh, he, he was as straight a hitter as the golf balls as there ever was. Uh, and then you look at the, you know, the long career of Jack Nicklaus. You look at the long career, actually, uh, the long career of Tiger Woods. He won the Masters uh, a couple of years ago before, before he got in the accident. Uh, uh, the, you know, that, um, you know, I agree with the, the, the length of the career is, is, is a determining factor on greatness, I think. But uh, you certainly have to look at players like Johnny Miller, uh, you know, who you know, really, really played well for uh, a short period of time. But, uh, I can tell you how I don't think I ever saw anybody hit the ball straight or as close to the hole as Johnny Miller back in the 70s when I played with him. Well, none of those guys that you mentioned almost won the British Open at 60 years old. So... <laughs> Well, that's, that's an outlier. <laughs> I, did, I, I did one thing. I did scare those kids uh, when I was 59 years old. They looked up at that big yellow scoreboard up there, and they saw that name Watson, and then they looked closely and said, hey, that's not a B up there. <laughs> so, so, Tom, I have, I have to ask about that, about that since you brought it up. Was that, that shot on 18 one of the best iron? Did you just pure that iron shot? I did. I hit it the way I wanted to, without a question. I hit it right in the middle of the club face, and there was a gust of wind at my back that it it that hit. You know, there was it was it was a downwind shot, but there was an extra gust of wind that uh, that hit. And I think that uh, uh, probably was you know made the ball go over the green because I, I landed the ball uh, almost exactly where I wanted it landed on the green, and and under normal circumstances it would it wouldn't have gone over, but. Um, it might have hit that little dance slope on the very front left of uh, the 18th green at Turnberry. I don't know, but there, it might have done that. Uh, but anyway, it, you know, it is what it is. Well, so tell us about Alfie. Well, Alfie Files was the caddy that I was uh, hooked up with in 1975 when I went to my first Open Championship at Carnoustie. He had caddied for Gary Player uh, and won with Gary Player at Carnoustie a few years earlier. And Gary had brought over Rabbit, uh, this caddy from America, to caddy for him. 
And uh, Alfie, uh, through IMG, uh, the Mark McCormick operation, um, you know, they got me a you know, they got me a caddy, and it was Alfie Files, and he was a great old Cockney guy from uh, down in Southport, uh, near Burkdale, on the west coast of England. There were, and uh, he he smoked his unfiltered cigarettes and loved his famous grouse, and he wore his tam, and uh, he was a uh, he he was quite the character. He had a brother Albert who was also a character, and then both of them, uh, uh, you know. He, if we, when you go over to play golf in the UK, I can strongly suggest get a caddy. Um, and these caddies over there are characters. Uh, they have stories to tell. They'll, they'll bet on you against people you're playing against or playing with. Uh, you know, they, they have, and they have a, a tremendous amount of course knowledge to, to help you out on those links golf courses because links golf is a lot different than American golf. In American golf, you take your rangefinder, you look at the yardage, you kind of calculate where you want to land the ball, the ball's going to land there and go your distance. Links golf, you really don't know uh, unless you've played a lot of links golf to know how far the ball's going to roll uh, or what the ball's going to do uh, uh, going into a green or, or off, the fair, you know, off the tee. And uh, the caddy's the knowledge there is paramount. You've got to get the you rely on your caddy to help you. So preparing for British Open, you won so many of them. Uh, you had so much success over there. Did you prepare any differently? I did. Uh, and I did it strictly out of uh, reasons of trying to get used to the, uh, the time difference, jet lag. I mean, I, I knew that. Uh, after traveling to Japan, uh, you know, that guy jet lag just killed me. And uh, I said, when I went over to the, my first open championship at Carnoustie, I went over there and arrived on Friday uh, before the championship to get my body adjusted uh, to um, uh, the time change. And you know, obviously when you have a, you know, over there six hours earlier than Kansas city and, you know, that's if I had if I had a seven o'clock tea time, that would put me at one o'clock in the morning. And my body's not awake at one o'clock in the morning unless I have adjusted to it. And I knew that, and that's what I did. But part of the you know, but but I also added uh, you know, later on, I added uh, playing golf on a lot of links golf courses over there that that uh, I always wanted to play. Uh, Bally Bunyan uh, was was a, a favorite golf course of mine. I show up at over there in the West coast of uh, County Kerry, Ireland. And I play uh, Bally Bunyan for, uh, for a couple of days and uh, going up to Royal Dornick, uh, playing, playing Royal Dornick, going to play, uh, uh, you know, the, the links courses up the, up the coast, uh, um, you know, up, up the, up the East coast of, of Scotland. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that got you, you know, got you understanding the turf. The turf is different over there than it is here. It's sandy. Um, uh, it, it's hard and firm, sandy, tight, tight lies. And you, you basically, is what it, you had to adjust to uh, the striking of the ball there a little differently than you did in America and the, the lusher lies we found in America. Although American golf courses are now set up, and I'm sure you would agree, Hal, that the fairways have been cut so tight now, they, they mimic uh, uh, those fairways uh, and the link, on the links courses. And I think that's done a disservice to the game of golf and how tight and how short the grass is in the fairway. 
because uh, a lot of players, uh, a lot of amateur players can't hit it off a tight lie. They just can't do it. A lot of older guys can't either. <laughs> I can't. Hey, <laughs> look at him. I hit, I, I hit the ball thin all the time. I hit it on the on one line low all the time or two lines low. Uh, my club face. Uh, are you finding that too? Oh, am I finding that? My uh, arms are getting shorter. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. I can't hit it. Can't take a divot. I'm hitting it thin. Uh, man, the game is a lot tougher now than it used to be. I can tell you. Tom, how did you have so much success in the wind over there? What were some of your keys to playing in the wind? Well, I never considered myself a, a, a low ball hitter ever. I hit the ball and hell no, I hit the ball straight up in the air. Yeah, but uh, the one thing I did do, I hit the ball really solidly. And whenever you hit the ball so solidly, when you're going up through the air or uh, into a wind or something like that, you can, uh, you can get the right distance. And if you boil down to you know, golf uh, in, a, in a nutshell, it's hitting the ball the proper distance. I don't care whether it's a 20-foot uh, a putt, you have to hit the right distance to, with a break to, you know, and then play the break for that 20-foot putt. Or you have to, you know, when you're going into a downwind hole uh, on, a, on a Lynx golf course, you have to land the ball uh, 70 or 80 yards short of the green to have the ball end up on the green. You have to judge and have use, use your feel to feel the distance to get the right distance for you know, the shot. That's the key element, I think, in Lynx golf. And uh, it, that it is the, it's the biggest factor and you know, biggest difference in Lynx golf versus the softer conditions we play here in America. Well, you disagreed with me on uh, who you being one of the greatest players of all time uh, later into your career. But you had to be one of the best bad weather players that there was. And talk about the mindset. You know, so many people, they wake up and they see the weather bad. They're beat before they even go out there. You got that right. <laughs> you obviously didn't have that problem. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I always felt that I had an advantage over the, uh, the players who grew up in Florida and California and and, and your state of Texas, where they never really had to practice in bad weather. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City, decided, you know, I always decided I wanted to live here. I didn't want to leave my family and friends. People always ask me, why didn't you, why didn't you move? I said, I didn't want to move away from my family and friends. So that, that uh, precluded me. Uh, I had to, when I, I had to practice, I had to practice in bad weather. In fact, yesterday I was practicing here, getting ready for the Mitsubishi Electric over in Hawaii at my farm and, and the ground, you know, I couldn't get the tea in the ground. It's frozen. And, um, uh, yeah, you had to practice in bad weather. So, and plus I was a hunter. My dad had, my dad taught me to love to hunt when I was a, yes, a youngster and taught me how to dress for it. And, um, uh, so I, I, I knew how to dress for cold weather and was prepared for it. Um, and as you say, you know, a lot of the players, <laughs> when that weather turned bad, uh, they didn't want to be out there. I grew up in the Southwest Kansas area, Tom, and, and it blows all the time. 40, 50. Where, where there, Chris? Just, not, just south of Liberal. Uh-huh. So kind That's of flat up there. Oklahoma Panhandle. Yeah, I played a lot of little AJGAs and and, uh, and junior golf tournaments in Kansas City, and that was one of the Southwind. questions. Huh? You played Southwind out there, didn't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Southwind, Buffalo Dunes, Southwest Kansas Pro-Am, all those courses. Yeah. Sure. Those were good. Uh, those are good golf courses. 
And that was one of the questions I was going to ask you was, do you think living in Kansas City helped you help prepare you for British Open type weather? It's kind of what Hal asked about bad weather. But I, I, again, I keep going back to the wind because, you know, it blows hard in Kansas City. And, and obviously to win five British Opens, you had to handle the wind. And, and that was one thing like I worked with a guy, you probably, probably maybe remember the name Jim Woodward. He played on tour for a long sure. time. He was younger. Sure. Yeah, he, he'd always tell me. Chase, you have to hit it solid in the wind first. You have to hit it okay. solid. And one, one thing that Hal and I, we talk about a lot with our players is it's okay to go a little slower. It's okay to take more club and, and take some off of it and just make sure you hit it solid, take some spin off and and uh, and flight it a little bit differently, right? And so that was what I was just curious about. If you think that your, your, where you grew up enabled you to be more prepared to handle everything that, that came with the British Open. Well, I, I just... I, I grew up as, as a golfer with my dad. I didn't, I, you know, I never played golf from the first of September until about the first of April. I played in, I played football and basketball and I, you know, I continued that into college my first couple of years at Stanford. I, I just didn't play. Uh, but you know, those times that I did play, you know, that I, you know, when, when the bug really got me around master's time in April and, uh, you know, then through the, through the summer, uh, I played a lot of golf. I learned a lot. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is about the wind, I never really considered uh, myself a, uh, uh, a low ball hitter. So and people say, well, you got to hit the ball low into the wind. And uh, it, it does help. You know, only later in my life in 94, when I changed my swing, could I hit the ball low with accuracy and control. Uh, before, I always kind of hung back and I, I hit the ball off to the right, off the right field trying to hit the ball low. And, and that was... Uh, so I just, I just, you know, said, I'm going to hit the ball through the air, hit it solid and judge how far that ball is going to go into the wind or the crosswind. Um, you know, most people do not play, you know, most people do not ever play enough, enough wind, as they say, they don't play enough, uh, you know, for the effects of the wind. Um, and you know, when you have a 10 mile an hour wind, that's, that's, that affects the ball a lot. Uh, and you add another 10 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour. And now you're really, you know, you really have to judge. You have to do a lot of judgment there. The curve of the ball, uh, how far is the ball is going to go in wind, into the wind and, and conversely downwind. Uh, so now, um, you know, playing, playing the wind, again, it gets, it gets back to feel and judgment of, of your distance control. How far do you get? It doesn't matter whether it's up in the air or down low. Uh, it, it, um, uh, uh, you know, it's all about distance control and obviously hitting the ball a little bit lower, getting the ball on the ground, uh, when the ball's on the ground, the wind's not going to affect it as much. Uh, so, you know, I know how, how was a great low ball hitter. Um, and he played, uh, he played great, in, great in bad conditions in the wind, windy conditions. Uh, he was always there. So, um, there's not one way to play this game as I, I figured out over these years, but, uh, wind is, uh, it's just one thing, you know, swing with ease into the breeze. As my old teacher, Stan Thurst told me swing with ease into the breeze, just like you say, take some of the spin off of it, take more club. Um, I mean, I, I, I have a friend here that plays golf and I said, you know, TA, uh, when you're playing a shot into the wind, it's never a one club wind. It's a two club or a three club win. And you do that. Have, have some fun with it. Have, hit three clubs longer than, than, than the yardage says you should hit it. Three clubs longer. 
and, uh, and see what happens. And he came back to me and said, Tom, you're right. I mean, it's unbelievable. I can get the ball the right distance now. Amen. Most people out there don't want to hit enough club, period. Even if they were playing in dome, they all believe they hit it further than they really do. You know, one of the things in here teaching, we use track man and things like that. And we always ask everybody how far they hit it. They always give us a total yardage, yeah. not carry yeah. yardage. You yeah. never knew how far you hit it totally other than with a driver. You know, someone said, well, Tom, how far do you hit a total seven iron? Well, from week to week, that changed. Sometimes it's backing up. So, uh, well, you know, you hit the nail on the head, Hal. You know, I ask, I ask amateurs all the time, how far do you hit a seven iron in the air? And I, I say in the air is a throwaway line. Right. And then they say, well, I hit it about, about 160. Uh, I said in the air. Uh, no, 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 no. I hit it. I hit it about 150. I say about doesn't get it. I said, when you, <laughs> When you're on the tour, these players on the tour can hit the ball plus or minus two yards in the air with every club in the back. They know how far they can hit it in the air, and, uh, and it's pretty easy to it's pretty easy to learn that with your range finders. It really is. And of course, if you have have, have a track man, it's fine. But you know, with a range finder, and there's a target flag out there, and you can judge where that ball lands exactly. Hit that target flag like that. It says 134 yards, and then take your take your eight iron and and, and hit hit the ball. And if it lands at that 134 yards, that's you know when you hit a good shot, you know you you may you may have to take 10 swings to hit a good eight iron, but hit that hit that shot that 134 yard shot with that eight iron, and well, it consistently goes long longer than it. So I hit it longer than that. Uh, all, also when you're on the golf course and you're playing, you make ball marks on the green, right? Yeah. Everybody makes a ball mark in the green, fix it, but walk to the hole. He sh you've shot the distance to the flag, go to your ball mark, fix it. And then walk from your ball mark to the hole to see how far you carried that ball. Cause you've already, you know, how far the hole it is, but you don't know how far you carried the ball. And I do that consistently all the time. Still, I want to know, cause I'm hitting the ball shorter and shorter. I want to know how far I can hit a good, a, a, a perfect wedge or a perfect nine iron with under no, you know, you know under the conditions. And I want to know how far I land the ball. So the next time I have to carry over a bunker in 100, 123 yards, I know, you know, I have to hit a perfect wedge to hit the ball 123 yards with no wind on a level lie. And, and so, yeah, maybe I'm not going to hit that way. I'm going to hit that nine iron. Well, there you have it, folks. One of the greatest players of all time telling you that it still matters how he hits the golf ball. He's still <laughs> wanting to score. Uh, do you think that'll ever stop, Tom? Well, I'm, I'm going to play in the Mitsubishi Electric. That's the only uh, you know, tour term I'm going to play in. You know, the first term of the year over at Hawaii in, in Hawaii. I'm going to play that next week. And then uh, I'm going to play in the Watson Challenge. It's a tournament I started here, oh, 13 years ago here in Kansas City. Uh, you know, it just, you know, it, it, uh, it, it gets together the best amateurs and pros in Kansas City. When we play a, uh, we play a 48-man field and we play, uh, you know, we see who's the best player in Kansas City. 
you know, done that for you. I'll play in that tournament too. Last time I played in that tour, I played with a guy named Andy Spencer. He's, he's, he's a pro now on the tour. He outdrove me a hundred yards on the second hole. 100 yards, not 50, not 70, 100 yards. I paced it. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Tom, I'm getting shorter. We're at our age. Our numbers are going up with our age and coming down with our, our yardage. And I think it's something we're just going to have to live with. Well, I did shoot. I, I played in a, uh, in an event, uh, uh, for MasterCard at Los Colinas, where we played the Byron Nelson, right? Uh-huh. Played there this last week. It was 37 degrees, and the wind was blowing 20 miles an hour. And uh, I shot 68 from the white tees, all right, from the white tees. Uh, but I have to say it was like a, a, the old Watson 68s. I, I scrambled and got the ball up from everywhere, up and down from everywhere, <laughs> made one 20 footer for birdie and another short one for birdie and ended up shooting 68. It was, it was a typical Watson. I was kind of proud of that round. You should so be. you should be, but it still matters. Doesn't it, Tom? It does matter. Yeah, it yeah. sure does. Yeah, it does. It, I go, you know, I, I hardly play anymore. I don't play very much at all, but you know, when I go out, I still want to hit a few shots like I used to hit somehow, you know? Yeah. So, so, Let's get back on Byron Nelson for a minute. You know, I worked with Byron Nelson a little bit too whenever I was in college. He was really close friends with a guy named Mr. Shipton, uh, Brighton Shipton, Dallas. My dad did business with uh, Mr. Shipton. He knew Mr. Nelson real well. So Mr. Nelson started asking me to come over to Preston Trails, and, and we did. And the human side of Byron Nelson, you talk about what a great player he was, but I'm going to, I'm going to, share a little story here about what a man he was. And then I want you to do the same thing because this amazed me as a matter of fact, uh, my first year on tour was 1982 and I ended up finishing 11th on the money list and made $247,000. And Mr. Nelson called me on the phone and said, how I want you to come over and watch you hit a few balls over here. This is after the year was up with. So I would go over and he'd watch me hit balls for 30 or 40 minutes and he'd make a suggestion or two. And then we'd go in and have lunch. We spent a lot more time over lunch than we ever did on the driving range. And uh, we got inside and we shared a couple of stories there real quick. And I look over there and he's kind of got teary eyes and there's tears running down his cheek. And I said, Mr. Nelson, I said, what's wrong? And he said, nothing, Hal. He said, these are tears of joy. He said, you know, you just won more in your rookie year than I won in my entire lifetime. And he said, I think I had a little bit to do with your career so far. And I had a little bit to do with the PGA tour. So I'm just happy. Yeah. That sounds like Byron. Um, I spent hours and days and nights with him at his, his ranch in Roanoke, Texas, especially when uh, his, his first wife, uh, Louise had a terrible stroke and, you know, totally incapacitated her and Byron stayed by her side for two years and he rarely left her side, took care of her. Um, and, uh, I went down you know, to spend time with him, uh, you know, during this, this difficult episode in his life. And, and yeah, as you said, any of the time spent, uh, you know, listening to him talk about the life that he lived, uh, the, the life that his fellow competitors lived and other people lived, uh, 
his uh, his devotion to God, uh, to uh, his devotion to his wife Louise, to his uh, his uh, uh, way of playing the game. It, you know, Byron was a ham. Whether you knew it or not, he was a ham on the golf course. He loved to show off. He loved to show off his skills. Uh, in fact, he told me that when he played exhibitions, he would go to these golf courses and he'd say, what's the course record? And they would tell him this, well, the course record 62 or 63. And he said, who, who holds the course record here? And he said, well, the pro here, the, the club owns the course record. And he said, he never, ever tried to break the course record when the pro owned the course record. He didn't want to, he didn't want to do that. That was typical Byron. Uh, he also told me about 1945, the, the year when he won 18 tournaments, 11, 11 tournaments in a row, starting with the Miami four ball and ending at the Canadian Open. Uh, he said the next tournament, I can't remember which tournament it was. He said it was a huge relief that he didn't win it. It was, he had, you know, the pressure of winning every week of, of the streak uh, was really getting to him. Uh, and he, uh, uh, he, he, he was very happy that he didn't win, but then of course the following week he won again, <laughs> uh, you know, he finished, uh, I think in that year, 1945, he finished third 24 times out of the 30 tournaments he played in third or better, something like that. He never finished out of the top 10. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was just an amazing, amazing year. Uh, and just to you know, end in this, this about Byron. Byron played an exhibition uh, in, in Ohio one time, and Jack Nicholas was there as a kid. Jack said he watched Byron hit hit uh, uh, during during the clinic. He said he watched Byron hit balls during the clinic, and he made this comment. He said, "I've never seen a golfer hit the ball as pure or as straight as Byron Nelson in my in my career." Uh, it includes Hogan, uh, Sneed, Trevino, Johnny Miller. He just said, you know, Nelson was the best. Well, uh, he was one of the finest men I knew, too. So that's why I wanted to bring that story up. You know, I said to him one time what his, what his goals in life were. And he told me, he said, Hal, I want to be the best man I can be, the best husband I can be the best uh, Christian I can be and the best golfer I can be. I want to be balanced that order. in yeah. that order. order. Yes. And, and, and I'm telling you, he, he really was a balanced human being. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to tell you, we're really telling everybody else out there. Well, I tell you, I tell you when, uh, when Byron died, I heard it. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly how I heard it. I called up Peggy, who he, he had remarried, uh, Peggy, and uh, they were madly in love. And uh, I called up Peggy, and uh, she said, yeah, he was sitting on the swing in the porch of his house in Roanoke, and I drove in there, and uh, he was gone. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Peggy. I said, say, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. He's in the exact place he wants to be right now. That's where they don't feel, feel, feel happy for him. Feel happy that he is in the place that he wanted to be. That's a great story right there. So another person that was a big part of your life, Bruce Edwards. 
uh, great guy. Loved Bruce. He was always full of life. Yeah. Uh, talk about Bruce a little bit for those that don't know Bruce. Well, uh, Bruce Edwards uh, became my caddy in 1973 in St. Louis. I uh, just gotten married and I was carrying my bag. I drove into the parking lot at, at uh, the golf course there in St. Louis and I took my McGregor bag out. I had it over my shoulder and I was, I didn't have a caddy and I was walking through the parking lot there. It was a hot day, about 98 degrees. Saw a bunch of caddies off to the, off to the right here, sitting down in the shade. Back in those days, the caddies showed up on Mondays and, uh, and they would wait and somebody would drive in like me and uh, you know, they'd come over and ask me if they could caddy for me for that week. That's how they got their job. They didn't have professional caddies as such back then. Uh, you basically picked up a caddy for a week or two and then you picked up another caddy. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, in 1973, I didn't have much of a career going, but I, you know, I, I, was, I was doing okay occasionally. And I'm walking up there to go register with my McGregor bag over my shoulder. And here comes Bruce up on my right side and said, Tom, Tom, I wondering, uh, could I caddy for you? And I, you know, I put the bag down and I said, well, let's talk about this. <laughs> and uh, I asked him where he's from, who did he caddy for before on the tour. Um, and... Uh, uh, he seemed like a, he seemed like a, a good kid. And I said, sure, we'll give it a shot. Well, that tournament, uh, I finished sixth, uh, in that tournament, Gene Littler came back from cancer, uh, for a year off and cancer in the shoulder and won the tournament. Um, and Bruce, after it was all over, he was really excited because, you know, I paid him $15 a day and 3%. That was, that was the going rate for paying your caddies back then. And he, uh, so he, he got a bunch of money in his pocket, you know, 3% of $6,000 That's a lot of money for those kids. And the, uh, he said, Tom, could I caddy for you for the rest of the year? I said, now hold on here. Hold on. I'll tell you what, uh, I'll give you a shot next week and we'll see where it goes. Okay. Well, that lasted 33 years. And 33. Yeah. He, uh, he had, uh, uh, you know, he caddied for me in this, in the early part of my senior tour career. And, you know, I'll never forget the, the, the morning of the final round, uh, at Gallardia in the tour championship. Uh, he, uh, I, I come out there, it's cold. I mean, it's one of those Watson days. It was 40, you know, 43 degrees and blowing about 20. And, uh, you know, it was, it was overcast, you know, it was really cold. And he comes up to him and he shows me his hand like this. And he said, look at this, Tom. And the, there was no flesh inside that juncture right there. It was just a pocket. Well, I said, yeah. I said, what's this, Tom? I said, Tom. I, I, and I had been on him to go see a doctor for a, a full physical for a long time because he's a smoker and he had, you know, he had congestion all the time. And uh, I said, you've got to go see, uh, get, get it. You got to get, get, you know, get a, uh, a complete physical. Well, I won the tournament. I didn't hear from him until Marsha, his girlfriend called me up and said, Tom, he's, he just can't breathe. He's coughing so badly. I said, all right, enough is enough. So I called up my friends at the Mayo Clinic up in Rochester. And uh, I said, can you get Bruce in there? I said, yeah. 
you know, bring him, have him arrive uh, to, uh, tomorrow, and we'll get him in for a complete physical. Well, there, I was, you know, about three days later, uh, got a call here. I was eating dinner with Hillary and her kids, and I get a call uh, from Marsha, and uh, it, it was Marsha on the phone. and said, "Tom, I've got, I've got terrible news." And I, I had, a, had an inkling what it might be, and I, uh, I said, well, "What's that, Marsha?" I said, "Well." Bruce has ALS here. He wants to talk to you. So I pick up, you know, he, he gets on the phone. He said, well, I just made a quad. <laughs> <laughs> That's typical Bruce. He just made a yeah. quadruple bogey. Um, and I said, yeah, we'll, we'll beat this. We'll find a cure. We'll find something to, we'll find something for it. And I mean, we just uh, pull, I pulled out all the stops of my, contacts and all the information I could glean and, and, uh, Paige Hillary's, uh, daughter was doing the same thing. We were just, we tried everything from Cobra venom to massive doses of, of, uh, vitamins to, uh, you uh, thinking it might be a Lyme's disease to all sorts of things, but, uh, alas, it was, it really was, it was ALS and it killed him. Uh, and typical Bruce, <laughs> He loved the Masters with a passion. That was his favorite tournament. He couldn't wait to caddy at Augusta. And uh, I knew it was, he was in bad shape. Three weeks before Augusta, I went and saw him with Billy Leahy, another caddy who was on the tours, no longer caddying, but went and saw him. And he was in bad shape, and uh, but still had that great sense of uh, Bruce Edwards' humor. And uh, at Augusta, on the, that Thursday morning, it was a drizzly, cool Overcast morning, uh, Hillary, my wife came up to me and she said, Bruce is gone. And I said, well, that's typical. Yeah. He loved the masters. He's just going to pull the plug at the masters. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's obvious how much Bruce meant to you. And, uh, as we get older, those loved ones mean a lot, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. There's, uh, you know, that's what life's, life's about relationships, Hal, you know that. Uh, it's about relationships, and you hope that over the period of your life, you can have uh, uh, a good friend or two good friends or three good friends. That's all That's all that's needed, you know, just right. somebody that you love and trust and rely on and has your back, whatever you do. Uh, and that's that's what we, you know, that's what we, uh, we human beings we rely upon in life as far as a human aspect of it. And then there's the God, act. there's the, there is there a higher power or the religious aspect of it that knowing that we're, we're, <laughs> we can't act like God. We, you know, we, we can't believe that we're God, that, you know, there is only uh, a God that is there that, um, you know, that really has the power over to, over our lives. And that's, and we have to, we have to understand that. Well, one thing you mentioned there that I want to uh, bring out is uh, all the great players that ever played the tour. It looks serious, but you talked about the humor that uh, that Bruce had, and you know Freddie caddied for me for years, and Freddie was very humorous. Mm -hmm. And you look back at all of the the great players; they had caddies that were humorous, really. You know, I mean, there were characters. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, they, they had to be humorous to carry <laughs> to, to put up with our bullshit. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we get, yeah, our, well, I, a case in point when I <clears throat> was playing in the U S open at Pebble beach in 82, um, I just bogeyed the 16th hole to go in a tie with Jack. And then I hit a two iron, a pull hook to two iron. I didn't pull a hook, but I pulled it in the, you know, just left of the green in the deep stuff, just, you know, you know, in a bad situation, I short sided myself on the down slope. I knew I was, you know, I was, I was toast. I'm walking off the tee there and I muttered to myself and Bruce could hear it. I said, well, that's dead. And he just said, no, it isn't. Let's go get it up and down. You say, you know, they had to be, you know, they had to be humorous, but they also had to be part psychologists and they had to be, you know, and Bruce is one of his greatest attributes was that the life, life was, you know, it was a glass half full, never half empty. There was always, uh, there was always a chance. When I made a double bogey, he said, come on, let's, you know, come on, let's get a little run going. Um, he, he said, uh, when I'm playing crappy, uh, uh, you know, I warm up just crappy and I, you know, I mutter and I say, well, this is going to be a really good day. He just says, find a way, just find a way to get it done today. And we'll, you know, you know, we'll sort out the swing, you know, you'll sort out the swing later. And uh, so the caddies, caddies were, were there to support us. They had our back. Um, and yeah, they were humorous. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they, were, they were, they were a lot of fun to be around. Yeah, they were. And I think, you know, golf has a tendency to put us in a bad mood from time to time when you're oh. really getting at it. <laughs> and, and, and good caddies realized that. They accepted you were going to go there, and their job was to pull you back into being hopeful and yeah. Uh, optimistic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's like any good friend would. You know, you know, they know, they know that uh, uh, you're going to be on your pity pot. Uh, you know, when things are going badly and, you know, just the wheels are, are falling off, you know, you, you know, they, they're there to, you know, not to give up on you. They're there to, you know, support you. Hey, like Bruce said, you know, find a way, just find a way. So, well, so, I, that's, that's a perfect, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but survival. I mean, here we're talking to one of the greatest players of all times. And there were days you went out there where you were just trying to survive, weren't you, Tom? Well, not survive, just you know, trying to, you know, trying to, you know, you know break 80, you know, it's just, right. you know, it was going sideways. I mean, I can tell you the story about the, you know, the, well, the, the, uh, the U S open is a prime example. I was playing a, my worst golf in years going into the, in the U S open 1982 at Pebble. I mean, terrible. It was going left. It was going right. And I didn't know where it's going to go. And normally it went right. But when it's going both left and right, and I mean, not, not just a little bit off, but way off. Yeah. I said to myself, I said, I got, you know, I go to the practice tee, try to find something that's going to work in the swing. Nothing is working. Nothing is working. Played three practice rounds. I practiced around the greens all the time because I knew that I was going to, I wasn't going to be hitting very many greens. I better, you know, I better get used to the heavy, heavy rough and, and getting the ball, trying to get the ball up and down somewhat. And you know, the first round I go out and I'm, I mean, I'm hitting the ball sideways, but the great thing about it, Hal, as you well know, the U S open, they put those, they put those fairways narrow and they got the really heavy stuff like that. But then they put the gallery ropes out, or out here like this. 
I was hitting it so crooked, I was hitting it into the gallery. So I had good lines going going down grain, you know, they're walking down grain. So, I mean, if I was hitting it crappy, it, you know, I wasn't getting penalized like you. If you missed a fairway, you missed it by two yards. You were in the stuff like this. I was in the stuff like that, but it had been bent over like that, and I could hit a shot to the green. So through smoke and mirrors, I was three over par coming into uh, the 14th hole, and I birdied three out of the last, last five. Even par for the round, U.S. Open. Pebble Beach. Next day, I was three over par going in the last four holes. I finished three under in the last four holes, even par. And I, I have, you know, I have, I have, you know, U.S. Open is the tournament I wanted to win the most. But in after even being at, at even par and four shots behind, I think Bruce Devlin, I, I have no chance of winning this golf tournament the way I'm hitting it. I mean, if the wheels are are going to. <laughs> finally collapse and and I, i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna shoot that 78 or 80 that I, i've been looking at the first two rounds and, and somehow got it back to even par then i went to the practice tee again just trying to find a swing that worked you know how it works you go to the practice you try you try things you know you're, you're trying something and i remembered a, t a key from sam sneed you know sam and i we had a great we had a great relationship i always when Sam ever showed up on the tour, which he did quite a bit in the in the you know the first you know the early seventies, I'd stop practicing, and I'd go and stand behind Sam to watch him practice, and he he would enter you know we enter conversation, and I got to be uh, conversational with him, asking questions about the swing and things like that, and he said one the, one of the keys to the swing was to keep that left arm tight to the chest on the on the backswing keep it tight to the chest like this. And it's, okay, I got, you know, I got nothing to lose. That just feels like I'm really tight and, and, and I'm going to short, you know, I'm going to really short my swing. Well, all of a sudden that ball started going straight rather than out to right field, straight, no right field. You know, I practiced for about an hour, hour and a half after the Friday's round. And the last part of the practice session, I turned to Bruce and he, and he, uh, he said, I, I always wanted to hear these words out of my boss, Watson. He said, I've got it. And I told him, I've got it, you know. And the next, next day, uh, the first hole at Pebble, you know, the first hole, he got out of bounds to the right over there. And as far as offline, I was hitting it. You know, here's the test right here. And I took that three wood back and I just hit it. I just hit it dead straight down the middle of the fairway. And uh, I said, now I have a chance. I have a chance to win the tournament. I wanted to win most. And as luck would have it, the last day I made everything and one lucky chip and I ended up winning. Uh, but it turned around just like that. And I, that happened a number of times in my career where I was playing really crappy. Uh, and I, I made a change in the golf swing and all of a sudden it started to flow and I got a, you know, I started hitting the ball the way I needed to hit the ball. And of course, when you do that, now you have the confidence. People say, Oh, he's lost his confidence in his golf swing. No, you haven't lost your confidence in your golf swing. You lost your golf swing. Your confidence comes from success. It doesn't come from uh, just, you know, the, the confidence in it. No, it comes from success. And I always built my, my practice on success. If I could go out there and end up into practice session where I felt like I had 
I, I was a success in hitting the golf ball any way I wanted to, uh, then that was a great practice session. There are some practice sessions. Well, I could, I could hit the, I could hit the cut shot, uh, but not the draw, but okay. So, but I could hit the, I could rely on that cut shot. Um, you know, and that, uh, yeah, that's the way I, that's the way I operated. You know, success was, uh, being able to control the ball, uh, left to right, right to left, high and low. And I wasn't very good at hitting it low uh, until later on in my career, but uh, that's that's how I that's how I practiced, and I I, I continued to practice like that. I, I don't practice like that anymore, but I still practice the shots. I, I like you know, and you do too. You know, hit the ball left to right, hit a little draw, uh, hit it up in the air. Uh, um, that uh, uh, that gives me it still gives me joy to do that. Uh, back in the days when I was really doing it, you know, that, that, that gave me the confidence and I was looking for that confidence. So Tom, that, so, that, that, Saturday, that Saturday of the U S open, when you found us kind of a swing feel that it was that, a Friday afternoon or Friday. So, okay. So you found it Friday afternoon after your round, but you, you implemented it the next day on Saturday, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. How, you know, a lot of players talk about they, they couldn't play with a swing thought or a feel. They were target oriented. Some players say that they're more internal and they can think about different things. How did you like walk me through that first tee shot? Like you pick a target, like just kind of the pre-shot routine of once you're over the ball, was that a, a constant thought of left arm tied across the chest and just commit to commit to it? Like where was your brain at from the time you set, set the club down to executing the shot? Well, I, I usually, my, my key thoughts were on the backswing. That's that my key thought. And, um, it, and that was just the one key thought that I, that, that I, that I found to be a success the previous afternoon, uh, right. Friday afternoon. And uh, th- that's the thought that I went with. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, you, put, you put all the other factors, you know, distance, you know, you know where you want to hit the ball or that, you know, in, in your brain. But the main thing is to make that, you know, that, that swing. Uh, using that swing thought and you get, you know, you get good feedback when you do it right, obviously. Um, and that's, uh, and you build on that, you know, one swing leads to two leads to four, you know, and, uh, the one thing about this game is don't let, don't let a, a, a bad swing interfere with what you know is, has, is working. Right. Don't try to, you know, in, in target, in target shooting is chasing the bullet. Uh, when you know when you're trying to shoot a group group out there at 200 yards and you've got a, you've got a you've got an inch you've got a less than an inch group out there and then all of a sudden you have a flyer that goes you know two two or three inches off the center there don't go chasing that by changing your scope you know keep keep working on and doing what you're trying to do right there and, and shoot that group same thing in golf when you and you have something that you know has been working for you you know, you don't discard it just because of one bad shot. You know, the wheels are not falling off because of one bad shot. And that, uh, that happens to golfers all the time where they come in, you're coming down to the, you're coming down the, uh, the wire and they hit a bad shot. Well, now, you know, the, you know, the dam is broken and all this, but that that's, that's hard. You know, sometimes that's human nature to, to think that, that you have to avoid that at, at, at all costs. Say no, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. I continue to do it right. You know, that was just an outlier right there, that shot. 
That's some that's some good stuff right there. Um, you mentioned the the pitch shot on seventeen. Uh, somebody on Twitter asked if that wouldn't have gone in, how far by the hole do you think it would have gone? It probably go, would have gone six or eight feet by. I thought that was an interesting question. I wanted, wanted your wanted your take on it. Yeah, it, it probably you know that's probably what it meant. And now I've got to make a putt you know, on those bumpy Poana grades to stay even with Jack. And then yeah, we'll never know that answer because it didn't go it by did, at all. It went in. <laughs> That's right. I took dead aim. I tell you that when that chip shot. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I related the fact that you know, as I related to you during the practice rounds, I practiced that type of shot all the time in the three practice rounds. And how you know those greens, the way they, the design of those greens, the bunkers, the sand came out of the bunkers. With, with mounds, and then there's a downslope uh, off there onto, uh, onto the green, and that downslope was covered with deep grass. So I practiced that, that downslope shot you know, constantly during the practice round. So it wasn't new to me. It was a shot that, you know, I can do this. And fortunately, I had a pretty decent lie. Even though it was in the deep grass, it had a pretty decent lie, but it was, it was on the downslope. The ball was below my feet. And... Uh, I'm looking at, I've got I, you know, 15 or 16 feet. That's all I've got to the flag. And uh, I said, I've got to try to hit the flagstick here. And uh, it broke left to right. I knew the, you know, I, it, there was a break in there. So I aimed aim for it and uh, hit, the, hit the ball. It couldn't have hit the ball any better, literally, on the club face. Uh, uh, actually, when I... When I put the club back in the bag with Bruce, I, I glanced at the club face, and right in the middle of the club face, right in the middle was the was the grass spot. I mean, it wasn't off center at all. It was perfectly dead center in the club face. That's awesome. That's awesome stuff. Hey, one last question here. Favorite golf course in the United States? What is it? Well, you know, I, it's always a go-to uh, question. <laughs> you know. It's like uh, saying, do you like blondes, redheads, or brunettes? I mean, come on. Uh, you know, someday it's a blonde, someday it's a brunette, someday it's a redhead. Uh, but it, it, my default answer is Pebble Beach. And you know, Pebble Beach is, uh, I had a lot, I've had a lot of history there. Uh, but frankly, if you look at the golf course, you know, I like the golf course because it doesn't beach up. It's a great golf course from the standpoint you start off you have some, it starts you off kind of with a handshake with the short holes, you know, start, starting off all, all the way through seven. You've got, uh, if two plays is a par five, you know, places par four in the U S open, but, uh, and five, the par three, those are the two, two holes that you have to deal with, but you've got one, three, four, six, and seven. All those, those five holes right there. You can, you can bury all those holes. Yeah. And, but then it happens. The three best par fours in a row in the world start at number eight in Pebble Beach, eight, nine, and ten. That's and, right. And then you then, then you the, you play the back nine into the wind, and I tell you that back nine it still got to me as far as distance control is concerned. I kept on coming up short at thirteen. I kept on coming up short at fourteen. Uh, Sixteen was always an enigma. Uh, I, I really couldn't judge 16 going down that hill very well. Um, uh, you know, 17 and 18 are flat, but you know, again, 
uh, you know, coming into that, coming into that back nine, playing into the wind and then a right to left wind at 17 and into the wind at 18. Um, it was all you want. Yeah. I thought the third shot, you know, at 14 was one of the hardest little shots in golf. Yeah, I mean, to, it was. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. It, Even though they've expanded that, they've expanded the green there and they've, they've taken that big, you know, the, you know, the severity of the front slope on the right-hand side, they've taken a little bit of that away so they can use a, a right flag position there. Uh, and they, they, they messed up, uh, uh, and what hold they messed up the 11th green. You know, they made a, they made it bigger. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, that, that green was just a wonderful green. I mean, it just was as good as it got. Uh, you better blow the hole there. You better be below the hole. And, and now they flattened it out and they've taken some of the slope away and they made it larger to the right, and a little bit deeper. It seemed like, uh, I don't know why they did that. That was the bad mistake. Well, you got anything else, Chase? Yeah, Tom, I'd like to ask you one, one more quick little question. Um, we, we work with a lot of, of good, young, aspiring junior golfers, college players, even mini tour players. What's some advice that you have? If you could go back and talk to yourself at 16, 17, 18, like just about the journey of the game and what to expect and how to handle emotions and, you know, what would, it, what would some of your advice be? Well, the most important thing, uh, do you know whether you really want it or not? And what's that mean to you? Do you really want to be the best? Mm-hmm. Or do you just want to go out and play? You know, you just want to, you know, uh, play, you know, play, play good golf. But do you really want to be the best? And that, that wanting to be the best makes you a better player. Uh, and what it does, it, 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 it makes you practice harder than anybody else. It makes you, uh, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, gets me is that not so much on the senior tour, but even on the regular tour when I was still playing it, the, the number of players who did not practice after the round was over. Because practicing, uh, uh, going to the practice tee right after your round is over, you have the, your mistakes fresh in your mind and you practice those uh, to to uh, solve the riddle, so to speak, and the, on those mistakes, the swing, the swings that you made, and you go to the practice tee and you work it so you do it right. So the next time you f- face that situation, uh, you have the confidence that you 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 will do it right. And uh, but you know the uh, I I always had the desire uh, to be the best I could be you know, the best golfer I could be, like Byron said, you know, the best man, best husband, uh, uh, and, and the best golfer he could be. Everything else would, would follow, would fall in line. The bottom line is everything else would fall in line. Um, you know, if you, if you aspire to be the best that you can be and do the necessary things, you have to figure out what the necessary things are to be the best. You know, you can rely on track, man, you can rely on this, but no, the flight of the ball never lies. If you're out there hitting golf balls without a track man, you know whether you hit a shot or a good shot or a bad shot or a, a marginal shot. You know by the flight of the ball if you're any good. And you better practice until you get that flight of the ball the way you want it to be. And uh, uh, you better continually try to do that. 
it, it, you know, it's, it's, you know it, I can equate it back to horses, pal. You know, you can have the greatest horse in the world and you go into that show pen and you make a mistake in that horse. That horse remembers that mistake. So the next time you go in there, if you don't tr train that horse not to make that mistake in the training, that horse is going to, he's going to take the easy way out and make that mistake again. And the same thing applies to golf. You know, you have to continue to, uh, to try to improve yourself. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I guess the main thing is not be satisfied unless you get to that, you know, that, that one point where it said, you know, I, uh, you know, yeah. You know, I, I played my, on my tour. I, I, there were five tournaments in my career that I knew I was going to win teeing it up on Thursday. I won four out of the five. of them, And, uh, the rest of the time, man, it was, it was a horse race. I'm, I'm teeing it up on Thursday to try to, you know, try to end on Sunday, uh, with the lowest score. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's the, that's the nature of, 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 of the game. Uh, and my, uh, you know, my focus, my, my focus in the game really started, uh, my junior year in college where I, I decided that I was going to turn professional and I'd better try to, you know, I better work as hard as I could to be the best I could be. That's all I want to do is see if I could be the best. I, you know, what, what, what was that going to look like? The best that Tom Watson could be. And, uh, it, it took a while. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, I got to the, I got to the point where, uh, uh, I, I could play this game and I could play it pretty well. And, uh, uh, did I win every tournament? No. Did I win tournaments that I shouldn't have won? Yes. Uh, did I, uh, um, win the tournament I wanted to win most? I finally did. I won the U S open and I told her the story about how bad it was going into the tournament and how it turned around with just one swing thought. I've got it. So I started by telling you, I thought you were one of the best of all time, all the way to your late age. You just convinced me. I was convinced beforehand. I think you ended up being the best that Tom Watson could be. Well, uh, I think so too. I mean, I, uh, Although there was always there was always room for improvement, <laughs> there really was. Yeah. Um, well, we I, I should have done this or that, but well, there there's always room for improvement, uh, uh, and that's why we love this game, Hal. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, uh, yeah, yeah, I've seen you play, you know, the, the best golf, you know, of anybody I've almost ever seen play, and uh, and there are other times you you, you couldn't, uh, right? And I, you know. I understand. I understand. And, you know, we strive to be the best we can be and, 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 and hit, you know, hit the timing, right. Where we have a tournament that we really want to, you know, any tournament we want to win, but, you know, to hit the, hit the ground running and, and we have the, have the, have the opportunity to win the tournaments we want to win. And that, uh, you know, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful to have been able to play a game for a living. Uh, and not, uh, uh, you know, not ever have to have to think or too many times that God, this is, this is work. This is, you know, at times it was work and at times I hated the game, but, uh, my good friend and teacher Byron and also Stan said, it'll turn around. 
You know, yeah. if you keep working at it, it'll turn around. And they were right. You know, just uh, at times you just it doesn't flow, and you're doing the wrong things, and you and you uh, you have to. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean that uh, it is total frustration doesn't set in, but it does mean that uh, you you have to understand that that frustration will lead to uh, something good if you if you pursue if you pursue you keep you you got to keep putting one foot ahead of the other. One foot ahead of the other. You can't, you can't just stop. Well, we appreciate you taking the time out to be on Be the Right Club today, Tom. Uh, both Chase and I admire you a lot. And, you know, when we posted on Twitter that you were going to be on, there's a lot of people out there that admire Tom Watson. So they'll all be looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. Well, thanks, Hal. And Chase, I got your name right this time. I appreciate the, no the time be able to talk about uh, the game we love. Tom, yeah. thank, thank you so much. You, you're, that last little bit gave me goosebumps. Like so much, so much good information, so many good nuggets that our listeners are going to love. Thank you so much for coming on. You bet. You take care. See you, Tom. Be the right club today. Yes!